Well, we're in uh, the book of Philemon. Man, I want to say Philippians. Philemon. This is a book that isn't uh, preached as often as Philippians probably, but it's a very important book, I think, for us to be looking at because it is, as one person has put it, the anatomy of reconciliation. This is the inside story for how believers can be made right with each other again. We need this. We need a book like this. Um, We're in part four of this series, and I'm planning to finish it today, this morning. And I'm kind of sad to finish it, but I think that the message of today all kind of hangs together as we conclude and come to the, the end of 25 verses. So we're going to conclude this book today. But I got to say, pastorally, this has been a good book for my own heart. I have enjoyed um, conversations <clears throat> I've had with people regarding their own reconciliation stories, their own needs, um, talking to me personally on, on very heartfelt levels about how the Lord is working in their own lives. And I think that this is the prompting work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God in the hearts of the saints. And so that's what the Word of God does, right? We want the Word of God to open us up and we want to enter into what God wants us to do and who he wants us to be. And so as we are moved along by the Holy Spirit, we enter into where God is taking us through stories, historical, accurate, factual stories like what happened in Philemon's life with the slave Onesimus who fled him, where Paul the Apostle was sending him back for there to be beautiful gospel God-centered, Christ-honoring reconciliation. And I got to think that the end of this story is a very happy ending because uh, this book of the Bible made it into the Bible. This letter that was um, circulated throughout the early church about this particular story about real people that the church knew about, um, I don't think it would have made it in the Bible as part of our Holy Scripture if this story had an unhappy ending. Had Philemon just flat rejected Onesimus, I don't think that this book of the Bible would have existed in our New Testament. And and so I think we can safely assume that reconciliation took place. And I want to show you that this morning from Scripture. Follow as I read verses 17 through 25 to get us started. Paul writes, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's just review what we've covered so far. We've had three messages. This is number four. Let's get a running start into the conclusion of this great book of the Bible. 
Um, first of all, I have themed the series with the idea and truth that it's never an option in the body of Christ to withhold forgiveness from someone. We are to generally forgive people and not keep a record of wrong. We're not to hold people's sins against them as if we had the right to do that. And then we are to be wide open with open arms toward those who've offended us, who would come and seek reconciliation to immediately forgive them. We know as believers we've been forgiven much and we are like the, um, the woman who came to Christ who wept over Jesus realizing her deep sin. A woman who was probably a harlot came in and during the feast of Passover anointed Jesus' feet and washed his feet with her hair. And the idea there is that she had been forgiven much. And so she loved much. That's why she did that. And as every believer, we are that person. We know that we've sinned against a holy God. We've been forgiven much. And so how dare we withhold forgiveness from anyone else? Especially in the body of Christ, when a fellow believer is seeking forgiveness, we freely forgive. It's an automatic response. And so Philemon is a book of the Bible where Paul is outlining that reality through making a couple points. First of all, the first point is we don't withhold forgiveness because God gives believers new Christian identities. We've learned a lot about Philemon as this uh, person who, who was wealthy. He was a businessman. He had servants in his home. He was the host of the church at Colossae in that area. And that church, that house church, uh, was one that he was ministering um, deeply in. He had been led to Christ by Paul himself seven years prior, probably, when Paul was um, in his missionary journeys in Ephesus. Uh, We assume that Philemon came to Christ in that um, preaching ministry. And then Onesimus, who was his servant, who as an unbeliever, was a fugitive, a runaway slave, leaving out from under Philemon's care and probably stealing from him to finance his escape, going to Rome and trying to become um, embedded in that community in, in obscurity and trying to get away from his problems. And consequently, in the providence of God, he found the Apostle Paul, who had led Philemon to Christ and was Philemon's spiritual father, and now Onesimus coming to Paul, probably at the end of his rope, looking for refuge, looking for asylum, looking for help, looking for spiritual leadership, and he found it in Paul, and Paul led him to Christ. And not only led Onesimus to Christ, but raised him spiritually, probably for many months. And so Onesimus was a growing, solid Christian who was returning home to make things right with Philemon. Point two, not only does God give believers new Christian identities, but secondly, God refashions hearts to love. As a believer, the love of Christ has been shed abroad in your heart. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. They will know we are Christians by our love. And so the great expectation is that Philemon will have a heart to love his returning brother in Christ, Onesimus. And so, In verses 8 and 9 and 13 and 14, Paul writes this masterful letter to address temptations where perhaps Philemon would say, oh yeah, you know, Onesimus was my employee and so he was insubordinate and so, you know, I'm going to pull rank on him. And, And basically, Paul deconstructs that 
before Philemon can even be tempted to go there. He also circumvents entitlement temptations to say, you know, I have these rights. And, and really, we've looked in verses 13 and 14 that because of the gospel, we don't wield those kinds of worldly rights or try to pull rank over people. Point three, we never can withhold forgiveness. Point three, because God transforms enemies into brothers. What we're talking about here is not some kind of business transaction. We're not talking about some contract that was broken and now is restored on a superficial level. We're talking instead in terms of a spiritual dynamic where Philemon and Onesimus were people who had two different natures. And now because Onesimus had come into the kingdom, they had a like nature in the Holy Spirit. They were both redeemed. They're both new creatures in Christ. So they can't be enemies because they're brothers in Jesus Christ. And we began making that point in verse 15. For this purpose, notice, is why he was parted, perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. In other words, they are eternally bound as brothers. Um, Philemon isn't supposed to somehow outlive the wrong that Onesimus did against him, but instead embrace Onesimus and say, listen, brother, we're going to be in heaven forever. That's the spirit of forgiveness is looking through eternity saying, listen, we're going to fellowship in glory forever. And then verse 16, Christians become family. Family in a good sense, right? This is the spiritual family of God. Look at verse 16. We didn't touch on this last week, so I want to unpack 16 um, just for a moment. Paul's saying, in terms of their relationship, Onesimus and Philemon, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. Speaking of Onesimus, no longer as a slave, more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, because in the flesh, and both in the flesh and in the Lord. In other words, Philemon with Onesimus now has a two-level relationship. In one sense, they had a good, you know, kind of a rough working relationship, but they knew each other. They had a past. They had a history together. And now, based on that foundation, now that he's a brother in Christ, you can love him all the more. All the more. Have you ever known someone that you knew before they were in Christ, sort of their BC days, and then you watch them become a Christian? And all of that, you know, sort of history you had either on the job or playing sports with them or whatever, it just becomes doubly great because you have a background together, but now you're in Christ together. That's the emphasis that Paul is making here to Philemon, saying, I knew him and he came to me and I knew him in Rome for a brief time, but you've had all this history with him and now you get to hit the reset button in Christ together. How much better of a relationship will that be? So again, Paul's really gas pedal down at this point in the letter. He's trying to bring home the bacon. He's trying to, you know, sort of uh, make the sale in Philemon's heart so that this thing will be set up to go well. Again, in verse 16, when he's saying more than a bondservant, he's not necessarily appealing to Philemon to release Onesimus from being his servant. Sometimes in that culture, in that context, if you were to release somebody from their, their 
indentured service, you could actually be putting them out on the streets. So he's not talking practically in terms of what he's supposed to do there, managing Onesimus. He's saying, in essence, look, no matter what Onesimus's social status is, even as a slave in that culture at that time, no matter what that is, he is your equal brother in the body of Christ. So when you welcome him back, you're not just welcoming him back as an employee or a slave. You're welcoming this brother back to share the table with you at the table of your local church. He is a beloved brother in the Lord. Well, let's move on. Christians are made from enemies to brothers. They're eternally bound. They become family. And then point C here is that Christians remove relational barriers. And I want to show you this. This is where Paul goes to work and basically deconstructs and prompts Philemon to remove barriers. Paul wants to remove any obstacle that would be in the way of reconciliation. And listen, when you really want to reconcile with somebody, this is what you do. When you really want something to work out, you remove any impediment that would be in the way of your love for each other. When you want marriage to go well, when you want friendship to go well, when you want working relationships to go well, you basically set the stage for things to go well. You, you're, you're committed in love to each other, and so you, you check your attitude, you check your circumstances, you do anything you can do to, to open the pathway for the relationship to work really well. I was thinking about a, uh, you know, engagement relationship. You ever see two lovebirds who are kind of six months away from getting married who really, really want to get married? Well, you know, they, they put on the rose-colored glasses, right? And, you know, their partner, their, their, their spouse-to-be can do no wrong. You know, oh, you know, you must have just uh, had some bad pizza. That's why you're, you know, acting the way you are, you know. And, you know, you're really this lovely person. And you just, you just do everything you can do to remove obstacles to make that relationship go well. Because you want to get married. Well, that's what Paul is doing here. He's just opening the door for there to be extreme receptivity. Begin with me at verse 17. He wants to open the door socially. So he says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Paul is saying, in essence, look, just as Onesimus has just walked through your door and you're reading this letter, It might be actually being read publicly to the whole church. It's as if Paul himself walked in the door. Verse 17 is the first command. It's the first imperative that's given in this whole letter, by the way. He took 17 verses to get to a command. The whole thing was being done relationally. He was trying to woo Philemon's heart. And then verse 17, he gives a very warm-hearted relational command. Do you see it? It says, so if you consider me your partner, here's the the imperative, receive him as you would receive me. Receive. It's receptivity. It's gospel language. Remember in becoming a Christian, we received Jesus Christ. Receiving people in the body of Christ is step two. We receive Christ and we become a child of God. And then we begin to receive people into our lives who are part of the body of Christ. Remember John 1, 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, in the same way that we receive Christ, 
We're receiving others in the body of Christ. In the book of Acts, the name Christian or title Christian was given to new believers. The word Christian means, class, little Christ. And so Paul is saying, Philemon, look, when Onesimus is standing right there and you're reading this letter, I want you to warmly receive him. As much as you love me, love this beloved brother. It's friendship. If you look back at verse 17, he says, consider me your partner. That word partner, koinion, it comes from the Greek word koinonia and fellowship, but it's really talking about the idea of receive him like you would a partner in ministry or a partner in business. You're doing gospel work together. Receive this brother. Do you ever hear of uh, Sir Thomas More, the Lord Chancellor of England, who was under Henry, Henry VIII? Um, he spoke to judges who had condemned him to death as a Christian, and he said this. Let me read you a quote from Sir Thomas More. He captures this idea of being friends through eternity. He says, As the blessed apostle St. Paul consented to the death of St. Stephen and kept their clothes that stoned him to death, and yet be they now both twain holy saints in heaven and shall continue there friends forever. So I verily trust and shall therefore right heartily pray that through your lordships have now here in earth been judges to my condemnation. We may yet hereafter in heaven merrily all meet together to our everlasting salvation. Some old, old English there. Let me just explain that. Sir Thomas More, in essence, is saying to the judges who were condemning him to death, hey, let me just tell you the story about Stephen and Paul. Stephen, the first martyr in the Christian church, where the apostle Paul, who was Saul at that point, stood there holding the cloaks of those who were executing Stephen. And Sir Thomas More is saying, listen, in the same way that Paul was the executor of Stephen, Paul became a Christian later on, and they both joined together, twain together for all of eternity to have fellowship. Sir Thomas More is saying, look, as you are my executors, as you are um, my executioners, as you are my judges, I pray that you too will become a Christian so that we can spend eternity together as well. That's the mindset of forgiveness where you see into a person's heart. Well, the second impediment that Paul is removing is a legal one. Look at verse 18. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Now, Paul's not naive here. He knows that when Onesimus left, that Philemon was wronged. And probably Philemon's reputation was sort of under view or under review at this point because the slave abruptly left him. So there must have been more going on to the story, right? I mean, why would he have done that? So he wronged, he wronged Philemon by abruptly leaving. And so he also stole from Philemon the time away because he was Philemon's servant. He stole money probably to finance his departure. But move on again at the end of verse 18. He says, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. What Paul is talking about here is money. Again, is it ludicrous for Paul, who's in Roman imprisonment, to offer money on behalf of Onesimus? Well, Onesimus didn't have any money. 
I mean, he's a slave returning home. He didn't have anything, probably. But Paul probably had some money because in Philippians 4, we learned that Paul was able to live on much or little. And in that story, in the last chapter of Philippians, um, you have uh, his beloved friend, Epaphroditus, who had come to him and had supplied him with full payment where Paul was saying, look, because of Epaphroditus, I am well supplied. So Paul did have some money to offer on, on, on Onesimus's behalf. In, in fact, he says, charge that deficit to my account. And Paul meant it. He meant it. We know he meant it because you can see it in verse 19. He says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. He literally took the pen out of the scribe's hand. Probably Paul in chains wasn't the writer of this letter. He had someone writing it for him, but he took the pen out and said, look, I want to write my signature over this as an IOU. This letter is now a promissory note. I will give you whatever I can on behalf of what Onesimus has taken from you. But I got to make this point. It's ludicrous for Paul really to have to pay money on behalf of this situation. It's ludicrous because of the gospel. The gospel deals on deeper levels than financial desires. But again, I think Paul with genuine integrity is removing any impediment possible. And Paul is saying, I will repay it. I will go there. Hey, turn back, look back to verse 18 again. That word charge that is a word that is used theologically in the New Testament on a gospel level. Charge. What does that word charge mean? It actually speaks of um, being counted or imputation or something being reckoned. It is accounting language, but it's accounting language that Paul also used in terms of the cross work of Christ. We are Onesimuses, right, as Martin Luther said. And we are the ones who've, as unbelievers, offended a holy God. And we are the ones who were indebted to holy God because of our sins. We had offended the holy God and we needed someone to come. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. And he had to pay a debt, a sin debt on our behalf so that we could go free. This is the gospel. This is what Christians do. I mean, you remember the, the children's song, he paid a debt I did not, I, I could not pay. I owe a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owe a debt I could not pay. There it is. And that's what's going on in this situation. Romans 4, 3, Abraham believed God, and here's the same word, and it was counted to him as righteousness. You know, one of the most Christian things that we can ever do is to pay someone else's debt so that reconciliation can take place. Do you know that? That's what it means to be like God. To be like God is to have a transformed heart where you want to forgive somebody who sinned against you. That's what God did for you. And then when you see a real need where you can intervene and you can pay for something and make something right, that's being Christ-like. That's being like Jesus Christ. He saw your sinful need and he stood in your place and absorbed your debt 
on the cross so that you could go free. That's what Paul is doing. He's living out the Christian life. Well, in verse 19 at the end, Paul takes things to a deeper level than just paying something off. It says, to say nothing of your owing me your own self. Paul takes things to a deeper level. In essence, Paul at this point is saying to Philemon this. He's saying, look, if you really are going to demand payment from me, you have just entered into the debt of your own soul because Paul had led Philemon to Christ. William Barclay put it this way, Philemon is turned from creditor to debtor in the space of two verses and loaded with a debt so large, your very own self, that he is under limit, limitless obligation. In other words, if you demand money, then you become Paul's debtor. If you're going to really view this in terms of a financial business transaction, then you're forgetting the fact that Paul had led Philemon to Christ. You know, it's kind of like being a parent. I mean, think of it this way. Um, you who have raised kids, and I'm in that process right now, you know how much time, effort, and, and sort of life that's spent towards your kids, right? I mean, our kids will never be able to quantify and compute and understand the level of self-sacrifice that's given them as we, you know, we change them, we feed them, we rock them, we, we you know, rub their heads, we, we give them our money, we give them our time, we give them our attention, we give them our emotion. And, and kids, they don't, they don't understand what is being sacrificed into their account as we love them, as we have parented them, as we raise them, as we sacrifice for them. And as parents, we enjoy doing that. We're not holding them under some real obligation, are we? We shouldn't. We just do it because they're part of us and we love them and we want to pour into their lives. That's what Paul is talking about here in terms of his relationship to Philemon. He had led Philemon to Christ and he's speaking in terms of love language, saying, I love you and you owe me your own self because Paul had sacrificially given his heart to Philemon. He had, he had won him to Christ. And if you've ever won somebody to Christ and built a relationship around a person's conversion and you're pouring into them and discipling them, then you understand this loving relationship and how powerful a thing it really is. And so that's where Paul is taking things in the turn of a phrase. Verse 20 says, Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Remember, he was saying, look, I'll, I'll pay for whatever, whatever was taken from you in Onesimus' departure. And then in two verses, Paul is saying, no, yes, I actually want something from you in the Lord. Let's take this to a whole new level. It's gas pedal downtime. Benefit here, this is actually from the same root word that Onesimus, um, the name Onesimus is built from. It's Oninonmai. On and it, it's a play on words where Paul is saying, I actually want you to um, be benefiting. You, I want you to, he's verb, making a verbal out of Onesimus' name. Be Onesimus. Um, I want Onesimus-like 
um, dynamic from you in the Lord. I want usefulness. I want benefit. And what is that? Paul wants Philemon to be restored to his brother in Christ. He wants him to refresh his heart. A thousand miles away, Paul wants to hear of the fact that forgiveness had taken place. If you look back at verse 7, Paul said he commended Philemon for refreshing the saints in the Lord. You've been this refreshing spiritual leader. So now actively refresh my own heart where I'm in prison. Refresh me by loving this brother in Christ. And Paul, by the way, he's not being self-absorbed. He's not worried about himself. What Paul is doing in essence is he's building Onesimus up. Onesimus is a new believer in the Lord, probably standing right there as this is being read publicly to the church for Philemon to forgive Onesimus. And so as Paul is passionately appealing for this slave Christian who's come to Christ, he's passionately publicly appealing for him. He's actually building Onesimus up in front of the body of Christ. Do you see that? He's, Paul is coming off of any sort of spiritual pedestal and esteeming Onesimus higher than himself, saying it's a proxy thing. It's as if I'm standing there. I passionately want you to forgive this brother. And if you forgive him, my whole heart will explode with joy knowing that true reconciliation had taken place. I'll put my money on the line. I'll put my social status on the line. I'll put everything on the line. Please make this forgiveness thing happen. Are we that passionate about forgiveness? Do we pray for reconciled relationships? Are we passionate about the gospel in that way? If we're passionate about the gospel and about reconciliation, guess what? Shockwaves will go out through Anchorage where people go, that is a holy body of Christ because it's a house filled with forgiveness and reconciliation. None of us are going to do the Christian life perfectly. We're all going to stumble around. We're going to fail. We're going to fall down. But the righteous man falls seven times and gets back up. You have to humble yourself before each other to be reconciled, to be forgiven. And that's what Paul is passionately pleading for. He wants Onesimus not to be discouraged in this moment. He wants Onesimus to be built up in this moment. He's saying, refresh my heart in Christ. Remember, he had said in verse 12, I'm sending my very heart. Onesimus is a piece of me. Refresh him and refresh me in this moment. Well, let's move to point D. Christians, they, um, they're eternally bound, they're family, they remove all kinds of barriers. And then lastly, they provide accountability. This is verses 21 through 25. This is really the part of the sermon I'm excited about. Here we go. It's true. I'm serious. This, I had to preach this part too because I couldn't resist it um, this week. This is all about accountability in the body of Christ. And I just have to say as a precursor to what we're about to dive into, if you're not open to accountability, you're not going to grow spiritually as a Christian. The Christian life is not lone rangerism. It's not being off on your own, an island unto yourself. The Christian life is all about being in community and your strengths are known by the body of Christ and your weaknesses are known by the body of Christ. We're in it together. And as you come together in the body of Christ into accountability, you will grow. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's entering into accountability with Philemon and Onesimus. He says, confident of your obedience, 
I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Stop there. First form of accountability is in terms of Philemon's personal growth. See, Paul is taking the attention off of himself. He's taking the attention even off of Onesimus at this point, And he's putting tunnel vision focus on Philemon. And he's saying, look, Philemon, I remember who you were. I remember when I led you to Christ. And I've also heard from your pastor Epaphras, who's back with me right now in prison. He's voluntarily made himself a prisoner with me under house arrest. And he's reported to me, Philemon, what a stellar testimony you have. And so based on your testimony, the word confidence here is like, I'm persuaded. I'm persuaded to believe that you're going to go above and beyond what I'm asking here. You're going to be hugging and kissing Onesimus, receiving him back into the fold of God as a beloved brother. I, I can't wait to hear the report about what's going on. And so what he's doing with this phrase is he's really raising the expectation. He's confident of his, confident of his obedience. He's going to be warmly receptive to Philemon. I mean to Onesimus. He says, I write to you knowing you'll do even more. Secondly, the second form of accountability comes in terms of Philemon's mentor, and that's Paul. He's basically saying this, verse 22, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying, I'm going to follow this letter. Like, you've got the letter. I'm a thousand miles away, but guess what? I'm going to follow and show up at your doorstep. I, he genuinely believed that he was. Now, you might say the odds are against this. He's going up in, in trial before Caesar. He's under house arrest. Is he really going to follow this letter? How can he be so sure? Well, look at what he says. He says, prepare a guest room. He's not being demanding here. He's just saying, reserve a place for me. I want to I put my reservation in at your house. Why? Because I'm hoping that through your, your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. First of all, the word hope here kind of um, finishes out the triad in this epistle of faith being mentioned, love being mentioned. Now you have hope mentioned in this epistle, faith, hope, and love. And so he's exercising faith here, saying, I'm hoping, I'm strongly believing that, now look at this, through your prayers. Through your prayers, it's plural. He's talking in terms of the whole body is praying in regard to Paul's release, uh, the word, the pronoun your is pl plural there. It's not just saying through Philemon's prayers. He's talking about the whole house church. As you are praying for me, I am expecting that I'm going to be delivered by God to your doorstep. You, you see Onesimus, guess what? I'm believing God that you're going to see me as well. And a prayer is powerful. It's been said that prayer is, is are the nerves that move the muscles of God's omnipotence. Prayer is powerful. I think we sometimes forget about prayer really being anything at all. We just do it sort of out of habit, out of respect for God, but we don't believe that something is happening dynamically through praying or through prayers. But this is actually saying that the instrumentality of praying is what God is going to move through. Remember, James 5 says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. It avails much. It creates things. God works through prayers. Why? How do we know that? Well, 
in Romans chapter 8, it says that the Holy Spirit is actually interpreting our prayers where we pray in the best way we possibly can according to the scripture. And then God uses those prayers and somehow aligns our prayer gear with God's will gear and things mesh and happen accordingly. And that's all bound up in the mystery of God. He prompts us in ways through the word of God to pray for things. And as we pray, he's answering the prayer request in accordance with his will. And Paul had that down in his mind as he's saying, look, your prayers as a house church are going to be what moves me right into your living room. And I'm going to be face to face holding you accountable for what you did or did not do. That's the point. I mean, how great accountability is it when someone is actually following up their request? Have you ever had a you know, family coming to town and your house is what it is or what it isn't and suddenly you have projects that need to be done, the house needs to be clean, the floors need to be swept? You get busy, right? You start to clean house because the real life accountability is showing up. This isn't just Skyping in your house where you can kind of move the computer screen away from the mess. This is people are living in your house. They're seeing whether your cabinets or fridge, your refrigerator is dirty, right? So you clean it up. In the same way, Paul's saying, look, I'm following up this letter and I'm going to be there and I'm going to see what you did with what I asked you to do. I'm going to see the effects in the body of Christ. And not only am I coming and not only do I want to come, but I'm assuming that you want me to come because I'm coming through your prayers. And so he's giving accountability to Philemon's prayer life as well. The mentor's coming. But it's also, thirdly, in terms of Philemon's prayer life. It's a future passive in terms of God will graciously give Paul to him. Uh, graciously, I will be graciously given. That's a future passive. It's the idea that it's not Paul's efforts that get him there. It's God's gracious work that's going to get Paul there. Remember the story in the book of Acts where Peter was delivered from prison by the angel and he showed up to the house where Rhoda was, you know, the, the maid and, and, and the house church had been praying for Peter's deliverance. They didn't believe that he was there. It must be a ghost. Ha, ha, ha. It must be some phantom you're talking to, right? Rhoda was, was the, uh, the maid there and really it was Peter. And though they were praying for Peter's deliverance, they really hadn't embraced the fact that the prayers were powerfully being used by God to bring that about. Well, the same thing Paul was believing for um, was going to happen. So, fourthly, the accountability also comes in terms of Philemon's pastor. Look at this in verse 23. It says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. Epaphras. In essence, Paul is saying, look, by the way, your pastor says hi. Um, you know, again, I, I have great expectations for you spiritually. I've heard from your pastor. I've heard you're growing. I'm going to be showing up. I want your prayers to be the, the instrument that gets me home to you to see what's going to happen. And by the way, um, Epaphras says hi as well. And Epaphras was a servant of God who had planted the church at Colossae, Colossians 1.7 and Colossians 4.12 give testimony to his pastoral leadership over this church. But this pastor had been freed up to go to Rome to support Paul and I believe to support him by actually putting him under house arrest. I don't think Epaphras was arrested per se formally, but it was as if he was a prisoner with Paul. 
It says he was uh, a prisoner, a fellow prisoner, but the word prisoner there is a different Greek word than Paul used of himself in this letter earlier on, where Paul is talking about literally being in chains, but now Epaphras is alongside Paul as if arrested himself as well. In Christ Jesus, he's there on mission, and he sends greetings to you. Verse 24, here's another point of accountability. You have accountability where Paul expected um, Philemon's spiritual growth to exceed even what he could ask for. Secondly, um, Paul himself was showing up to the front door. Thirdly, accountability looked like um, Paul asking Philemon to pray for Paul to come. Fifthly, Paul was uh, giving greetings from Philemon's pastor. And, or fourthly, and then fifthly, in terms of Philemon's friends. So now he's talking in terms of general friends that Paul and Philemon had mutually. This is like church talk here. We have friends in common that Paul's mentioning that are all eyes and ears on this event to see how Philemon is going to respond. He's bringing some friends up. It's the same list of friends mentioned in Colossians 4 um, minus one person, but these are the mutual friends that they had in common. Number one, Mark. Mark. This is the writer of the Gospel of Mark. This is John Mark. This is the one, as Colossians 4 mentions, was the cousin to Barnabas. And you remember the story where Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey in Acts 13, and they brought John Mark along. But in Acts 13, John Mark defected from the mission. He left. We don't know why. He perhaps got scared, but he ran away. Then when the second missionary journey opportunity came around, Barnabas said, hey, let's bring John Mark back. And Paul was not ready for John Mark to come on the mission field as yet. And so Paul and Barnabas went in two different directions and Paul and Silas went on mission together. But if you connect the dots in the New Testament, it's interesting. 1 Peter 5.13 mentions John Mark and Peter having a relationship to him. So perhaps Peter had an influence in John Mark's life and mentored him. And under that tutelage, John Mark began to grow spiritually to a level where Paul in 2 Timothy 4, at the end of his life, is calling for his dearest friends to come to him. I'm going to die. My head's going to be severed from my body. And I want my friends to come to me. And in 2 Timothy 4, 11, Paul says, Luke alone is with me. We'll mention him in a moment. He says, get Mark. He's telling Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful for me in ministry. That phrase is so apropos because Paul is not only saying he's useful to me as a personal friend, he's commending John Mark as a fellow minister of the gospel again. He's restored in my eyes and esteemed as a fellow colleague in the cause. It's an incredible example of restoration. I mean, Philemon knows this story. And John Mark was restored. Aristarchus, he was a Jewish believer from Thessalonica. He had been with Paul through some really rough times. The riot in Ephesians 19, in Ephesus, I mean Acts 19 at Ephesus, and the ill-fated voyage to Rome, which was a shipwreck in Acts 27. So Aristarchus, a very a tough guy. And then you have Demas. Demas is the opposite story of John Mark. Do you see that? 
Demas. He was also, he was affirmed in Colossians 4.14 at this stage, but there's a sad ending to Demas because in 2 Timothy 4.10, it says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He loved the world instead of God. It's what 1 John warns against. If you love the world, you don't have the love of God in you. And Demas looked like a Christian, was acting like a Christian, was commended as a Christian here in Philemon and in Colossians. But in 2 Timothy 4, at the end of Paul's life, he's saying Demas has gone after the world. Earlier in Sunday school, I was remarking about that, how I had a friend who, you know, I won to Christ in high school who became a pastor he got married. He was trained in ministry. He planted a church. He was part of a couple other churches, and then his wife left him and divorced him, and, and then he spiraled, and he went after the world. And we sort of, you know, as relationships go, we stopped talking to each other. He wasn't returning my phone calls. Why? Well, he was back into the world, and I knew this guy before he had become a Christian. We ran together as unbelievers, and just recently he repented and has been restored in the church and is a living believer. And he told me, he said, yeah, I was gone astray into the world. And that's, that's what Demas was doing at the time of 2 Timothy 4. He was going into the world. And so maybe Demas wasn't a true believer and never was coming back, but at least my friend who acted like Demas came back and it's a good warning to all of us you know our zeal that we have today is not guaranteed next year or five years from now being in the church and being accountable to each other is a lifeline to us spiritually where people know that we're showing up they know we're in the faith they know we're in the community where people know your strengths they know your weaknesses you're not ashamed of being known in the body of Christ and as God holds you accountable in the body of Christ he keeps your heart as the great Puritan Richard Sibb said in keeps your heart in warm spiritual exercise that's what you want it's the accountability there. And it's a warning because where John Mark was restored, Demas at this point was not. Lastly, look at Luke. Who's Luke? Luke is the Gentile physician who wrote the gospel of Luke and also wrote the book of Acts. He was a, a colleague and he was someone who, as you read through the story of the Apostle Paul in Acts, it talks about this other person being with Paul, the writer of the book of Acts, saying, we went here, we went there, that first person plural, we're here, we're there. That's Luke. Luke is a colleague and a companion alongside Paul. And Luke, who was with Jesus Christ, was affirming Paul in ministry and even there with him in prison, probably tending to his ailments as Paul was beaten up for the gospel. Well, the last uh, form of accountability I want to mention here is the gospel itself. In terms of Philemon's gospel, look at verse 25. There's great accountability in friendships, but maybe the greatest accountability is the gospel itself. It says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Why do we forgive It's grace. Have you tasted grace? Look, grace is costly. 
Grace isn't just some sort of philosophical idea or concept where we get a free pass spiritually. Well, I'm not a legalist, so I'm in grace. No, I don't believe in legalism, performance, religion, but grace came with the very shed blood cross work of Jesus Christ. It came at a great cost. Sin had to be paid for. The debt had to be taken away. And because we've experienced that, we have, we should have deep flooding gratitude in our hearts, filling our hearts with joy and the real spiritual accountability that when someone seeks our forgiveness, we're saying you are a restored brother or sister in Christ. There shouldn't even be a moment's thought to withhold forgiveness because we know of the grace of Christ in the gospel. We've been forgiven much. So what, what happened to Onesimus? What happened to him? Again, I'm sure he was forgiven because this letter is in our New Testaments. But church history also fills out a story of an Onesimus um, believer. Um, father Ignatius, uh, early church father of Smyrna, a half century later after this was written, um, was on his way to be martyred in Rome. And while he was on the way to his martyrdom, to his death, he was caring about a particular church, and that was the church at Ephesus. This is the church that was given to Timothy. And then following Timothy's pastorate, a certain man by the name of Onesimus became the bishop or pastor over that church. And Ignatius writes this church, mentioning Onesimus, saying, I received your large congregation in the person of Onesimus, your bishop pastor, in this world, a man whose love is beyond words. Onesimus greatly commends your good order. Is this the same Onesimus? Well, we're not exactly sure, but it sure makes for a fitting ending to a gospel-rich story because only in the gospel can someone's life turn from being a rebellious, fugitive, running slave, a person who's lost everything, lost his integrity, lost his security, lost himself, and then is suddenly found and captured by Christ, captivated by the gospel, transformed brought back into full restoration in the body of Christ, a person who's growing spiritually and perhaps even rising to the opportunity to shepherd a flock himself. Why should you forgive? Because you've been forgiven. Let's put the gospel on display as Anchorage Grace Church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story Thank you for this uh, life that we have witnessed together by reading Philemon. We're reading about Onesimus, how he was lost and then he was found. And even as the focus was on Philemon and him being accountable to forgive, I pray that we would embrace accountability, that we would love the gospel and recognize the gospel and not withhold forgiveness from anyone ever. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the forgiveness of grace and mercy in the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we are done with Philemon.